You're listening today because you have a question. For some, you want to help, but you don't know your role in ending racism. Others are asking, what happens when the protests end and we take down the Black Lives Matter signs? Will we have meaningful change? Will we have business as usual? Will any of this make a difference? You have questions, and so do we. Mr. Officer, Mr. Officer, you're the killing us. Mr. Officer, what if that was my brother? This is the season finale of Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. This is the space where we talk about the civil and human rights issues that you're talking about. I'm your guest host, Alan Brooks-Lashore, and I'm excited for the conversation we're about to have on this episode. Ashley Allison is on a break for this episode, but will be back with us in a few weeks. Now, Pod for the Cause wouldn't be Pod for the Cause without the Pod Squad. Joining me in this conversation are three amazing guests. Barbara Florville, Baptist minister and assistant to the pastor for youth at Alfred Street Baptist Church. Adora Andy Jenkins, Managing Director of Communications and Brand at Supermajority, and Brent Johnson, Manager of Executive Operations at the Leadership Conference. There's no better time than now to let our voices be heard and to have an open and solution-oriented conversation around the state of our nation. From the continued police violence to the incredible protests taking place across the country, this is all due to the unfortunate and tragic death of George Floyd. But we are the ones who can create change. And we are the ones that can keep pushing the movement forward until we actually realize racial equality and justice for all. It is June of 2020, but it feels like June of 1967. How did we get here? You know, the murder of George Floyd caught on tape is not unlike so many other murders of Black men caught on video. And so why? does this one seem to resonate? And I actually was having a conversation with my husband about this last night. We don't have the answer and I would love to find that answer, but I do think it had a lot to do with sort of this cacophony of like ingredients that have come together all at one time. And, you know, I think you can't separate any of this from COVID-19, who's in leadership right now on the federal level and state and local level. And you can't separate all this intersectionality that's happening in the world right now. People out of work, the revelation to many about systemic racism as it played out with COVID-19 and who was being adversely affected, whether it was health-wise or job-wise, et cetera. I mean, it was allowing a lot of us in talking to my friends and family, these conversations about working from home and who can actually do that. You know, what does that mean? Some people can get away to their farmhouses and other people are stuck in their one bedroom apartment with six kids. I think it's just revealed all of these things to people who didn't have to think about it before. Barbara, what do you think? I think it feels like 1967 and it also feels like 2020. So I think what makes it feel like 2020 is so much of what Adora said around COVID-19 amplifying where we are. So there are protests happening, obviously, but then there's the reality that people are literally putting their lives on the line for two different viruses, right? Two different pandemics that we experience. And COVID-19 is the invisible one that we now have scientific numbers tracking, but then we also have racism. So the reality that people are literally putting their lives on the line to know that they can potentially die one way or the other, but they're 
fighting to live in the midst of all this, I think it makes it all the more, I think, a powerful movement. Knowing that people are out there, obviously, hopefully with masks on, hopefully trying to create as much space between each other as possible. But the reality is that people are saying, look, it looks like we might die anyway. (laughs) If it's not at the hand of police officers, it might be at the hand of this pandemic. And it matters to us that we're here in this moment. So I think there's something to be said about how urgent the time is now. And Brent, do you think we are in a position, do you think that this is a real tipping point? Is it a real inflection point or is this yet more of the same, more of the same where we'll have a bunch of goodwill, we'll have a bunch of Black Lives Matter signs, but then we'll just backslide to who we've always been. What do you think? I mean, I think I'm hopeful that this is different. And I think if for no other reason that just the white folks in my circle, they are talking to me differently about this issue. I imagine that the same is true for Barbara and Dora, but like this feels different because it's not just Black people who are talking about this. It's something to be said about seeing someone with a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. We have all been stuck in our houses and we are all on social media. We're all very, very tuned into what's happening on TV. So you kind of can't look away. And I think that's in part what's made this moment different. But it's not just Black folks who are paying attention right now and who are speaking up. And so I hope that we can keep that momentum up. But we need white folks. We need everyone that is not Black to kind of take up this cause. Well, you raise an interesting question, and that is there are a lot of people right now who are saying, I don't know what to do. I want to be an ally. I want to help. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'll make the sign. I'll go to the protest. But what happens after people put their protest signs in the recycling bin? What do they do the next day? So if you're a non-person of color, how are you supposed to show up in this moment to ensure we have real change? It's paying attention to your local elections and paying attention to, you know, who is mayor, who's on your city council. Because as we know, so many of these police-specific decisions are made at the local level. So if you were paying attention at the local level when you throw your sign in the recycling bin, call your council member. You know, we can have a discussion about what you should say, but there are so many resources out there. But this all starts at the local level, and that's what folks need to continue to do. I love hearing that because it's almost like in the time it takes you to make a sign or find parking to get to the protest, like you could have made several calls. It's like an unusual thing for people to do. But so is protesting. And we know that because we didn't see y'all at the last protest. So we know this is new for you. So (laughs) it's okay. One of the things I think white folks or non-Black people of color can do, you know, I don't mean to sound sarcastic, but a Google will reveal a lot. Google, that's a series of tubes on the internet, right? (laughs) Well, what's amazing, actually, to your point, Alan, is that it's not 1967. It's actually 2020. And there are so many resources available to people who aren't Black to better understand what their Black colleagues, friends, and neighbors, and family members are going through right now and how they can actually help. And one of the things I find just a little frustrating, but I try to correct with love, is that you can't just come to me and ask me all about my, I know that feels right, like ask me all about my experiences and tell me what to do. You got to do the work. Can I touch your hair? laugh, but you know that has happened to me. <laughs> I know it seems hard to want to do the work, but we were all born Black, but we weren't born with this knowledge. We actually sought this knowledge. We're able to talk about this because we read about it and we put it into context. So read about it first and then come to me with that information so that when I give you my journey, my story, you know, my experiences, you have the context with which to like understand that, that it's not actually just happening to me. 
or the three of you, every single black person you meet <laughs> has a story. And I mean, I think that's one of the main things folks can do. What do you think, Barbara? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Brent and Adora. This is not a moment about having a catharsis. I think so much of the political moment can be driven right now by this idea that we're all feeling something and there will come a moment when the rubber has to hit the road, right? I think about when Barack Obama was elected and how everyone rushed to this notion of us being in a post-racial society, mm -hmm. right? How'd that work out? Um, how did that work out <laughs> eight years later, right? The pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction, right? And that's because I think we have been sitting on a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion around symbolism and haven't been really running with true change. And that's through voting and paying attention to what's happening locally. I'm really excited about what's happening in Minneapolis, right? They're really calling themselves out. They're in a space right now where they're saying, we're looking to defund the police. LA is looking at, I think it's $150 million reducing the budget in the police department, right? New York is also looking to do the same with their budget. There is change that is actually happening after the feeling and the regret and the guilt. So I think a lot of what Adora was saying around, you know, white folks feeling this like pain about wanting to explore more, doing the work, a lot of it looks like really putting your money where your mouth is. And that's withdrawing your money from places that are fueling racism and also giving money in spaces that are doing the work. I think that's an interesting thread too, Alan, on white guilt, which it's like, we only want you to feel so guilty as to like this be part of like the eye-opening moment. We don't need you to sit with it. We need you to stand with us. We get it. Having this revelation has to like sting somehow, right? Because you're not who you thought you were, those kind of thoughts. Like, cool, you should have those to the extent that they are actually like advancing something. But stand with us. Let's do something together. Let's work through this. And I know Ellen and I have recently had conversations just about white friends feeling uncertain how to reach out. And one of the like revelations I've had in this process, which there have been many, is that honestly, being Black in America means that you are constantly engaged in a series of acts of forgiveness towards non-Black people. So if you're a white person that has managed to keep a Black person in your sphere as a friend, as a colleague, somebody that will pick up the phone if you call or text them, <laughs> They've already forgiven you for something. So don't be so timid as to like clam up, right? Like they know your heart, as we say in yep. church, right? They know your heart. They know you mean well. You just have to be ready to receive some correction if done with love. And can I also just add that, you know, I'm all for non-Black people sitting in that discomfort because welcome to being Black, right? I think part of that is like actually really reckoning with what does it mean to actually feel this? What does it mean to actually see these videos? Because we've been seeing them for years. We've been living with this all our lives. And so one thing that I've been really honest with a lot of my white friends is I think I should copy and paste it on every text message, but it's like literally welcome to my world. This is the pain that we feel every single time this happens. I am glad. I hate that it took this long, but I am glad something is shifting. But you should sit with that. My hope is that, to your original question, Alan, that that spurs you to continue doing what needs to be done. 
how do we make it lasting, right? So I came of age with Rodney King, right? That was, at least in my lifetime, the first viral case of police brutality with a video that played over and over and over again. And people said policing would never be the same after Rodney King. We would never again have this conversation because someone documented it. A guy with a camcorder actually caught it. How do we make this real? How do we make this lasting beyond just a 2020 moment of temporary sympathy and goodwill? Barbara. I can even think to Emmett Till, right? We didn't capture the actual killing of Emmett Till, but we saw the aftermath. A mother willing to put her son's mangled body on display for the world so that the world would know that this is real. This boy didn't do this to himself, right? And only recently for us to know that the woman who put him in that position admitted to doing it on purpose. And lying. Um, Right, to lying. The reality of the exposure, again, I think leads to catharsis but our stories have to translate into something that is tangible. I think those are laws changing how we elect officials, right? Obviously in this election season, a lot of our conversations end up boiling down to, okay, now who's actually going to represent us? And without the institutional change to accompany the individualized revelation that this is real, (laughs) that Black people are scared to give birth to children in this world, there has to be a decision to make it manifest beyond ourselves. I think it can mean defunding police departments and funding education again in the way that we should have been over the last few years, right? As opposed to using education as a way to decide how many beds we put in prison. It's a matter of understanding that policing is not just an act, it's an ethic. It's how we see who's worthy of being safe and who's worthy of being served and who's worthy of being criminalized. So it's a change of thought and it's a change of how we do things in the real world in real time. It is about politics and elections and it is also about narrative shift. And so if we're changing the hearts and we're changing the minds, let's start changing the words, let's start changing the narrative, let's start changing the context. Let's be honest about who's dictated this context and this narrative to us and under what circumstances. Y'all, I just figured out that like half the songs I sang as childhood are minstrel songs. I went down a whole, whole lot. <laughs> oh, Susanna, all of these, they're all like minstrel songs. I mean, the state song of Virginia. <laughs> Good Lord. I'm like, man, this is doing a number, right? Yeah. Um, in narrative shift, like what does it mean to be American even? Like yeah. this is the time and we should seize the moment. And I think if we don't, then we are at risk of what you've described. I've had some folks ask me like, what does protest get us? And I'm like, well, I think you need to go to the earlier point and you need to Google and you need to do some research. But right. there's both a role for protest in terms of shifting the narrative and shifting the conversation. But also there's so much that we can do when we vote not just at the presidential level, but at the local level and voting in every single election because that is where a lot of this stuff is going to be changed. So I think it's an inside-outside game. And let me ask you this, because our conversation has been addled with hurt and pain and discomfort. But people of color and Black people in particular in this country have gone through painful periods while still maintaining a type of joy. So how do we maintain joy when there's so much discomfort, where there's so much hurt, where there's so much pain? How do we not lose our joy in this moment? I do think self-preservation is important. I hear it a lot in the motherhood circles. You know, if you can't be whole yourself, how can you give to your family? It works here too, you know, just taking that time to do those things that you love, seeking out your sisterhood and your brotherhood. And I really, really want to take a minute for the brothers who might be listening. Like, 
I know y'all don't like to hang out with your boys that much. I know you guys are homebodies. Like you've got to go seek out those other black men that you know and talk together. Like there's healing in that and there's joy in that. And there's always laughter in that. And I think that's something that black women do that we could help our brothers do a little bit better, I think. Brent, what do you think? I would underline that the taking care of yourself part is really huge, especially for those of us who actually do this work in our nine to five. It's kind of hard, especially when you can't leave your house. There's no separation, right, between work and home. And so it makes it even harder to really take care of yourself. But that's something that I've tried to do. And, you know, just doing small things. And I also think that these versus battles that have been happening over the last two or three months <laughs> have been really helpful for my joy. And I have some real ideas about who can be next, but that's a good thing to keep the joy up. <laughs> Barbara. I also speak from the position of being a minister and also a youth minister. There's a scripture that says there's a joy that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. I think it's a saying that helps us to remember that this joy that we have is not contingent on what's happening in the world. As much as we are affected by all that's going on, as much as it hurts the pain and the celebratory moments of seeing Black Lives Matter painted on the street leading up to the White House, right? As much as those things bring us- That was hot, by the way. <laughs> that, was, that was noteworthy. Those are moments that we can celebrate, but then there's also a joy that just comes with living and existing and knowing that we're all here for a reason, for a purpose. And racism and sexism and classism and homophobia, none of those things can define why we're here or take away the fact that we are here and that we have a reason to live, breathe, move, and have our being. So whatever joy looks like for you, hang tight to that because the world that doesn't want us to exist won't want us to be excited about life, won't want us to have joy. And joy is an act of resistance to me. For those who are just joining us, this is Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. And we have just had the Pod Squad with three amazing guests, Barbara Florville, Minister and Assistant to the Pastor for Youth at Alfred Street Baptist Church, Adora Andy Jenkins, Managing Director of Communications and Brand at Supermajority, and Brent Johnson, Manager of Executive Operations at the Leadership Conference. Barbara, Adora, Brent, thank you for adding your voice to the cause. Coming up, we have a special guest, Iyanla Van Zant. Don't go anywhere. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause. Today we've been talking all about the state of our nation. From the continued police violence to the incredible protests taking place across the country. We have a special guest with us today. Best-selling author, producer of Fix My Life, life coach at InterVision, please welcome Ianla Van Zandt. Ms. Van Zandt, in your view, how did we get here? And do you think this moment will lead to lasting change in our nation? Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm probably <laughs> among you. You know, I don't know. I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s, where the Doobie Brothers said, you don't know me, but I'm your brother. <laughs> they said, 
I ain't blind, but I don't like what I think I see. Taking it to the streets. Right. You remember that? I do. I do. And so for a long time as Black people, we haven't liked what we saw Mm. and what we experienced and what we were feeling. But we learned how to accommodate it, how to tolerate it, how to move in it and through it. And now we are taking it to the streets, (laughs) not just because of George Floyd and the systemic racism, but because taking it to the streets, we're moving energy. People are marching. That's moving energy. People are gathering. That's moving energy. Taking it to the streets, it means a physical level, a mental level, an emotional level, and a spiritual level. And nothing happens until you move on all of those levels. Well, we've been blind. We didn't like it, but we didn't do anything about it. And now we have taken it to the streets. I think it is so exciting. I really am excited. One of the things that you talked about not liking what we see recently, I noticed you took New Orleans Saint quarterback Drew Brees to task for his criticism of Colin Kaepernick and anybody who, quote, disrespects the flag. And you were very specific. You said that he is like another leader who, quote, values the flag over the ugliness that it denies and covers. Why has this ugliness persisted despite numerous so-called racial inflection points? I look at everything from a metaphysical perspective. People don't like to tell the truth about their ugliness. Mm. And so America has not liked or been open to telling the truth about their ugliness. And the ugliness is that Racism, white male superiority, capitalism was built into the fibers of this country. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this nose because my mother is Dahomean. I have these ears because my father is just Slaky or Cherokee. I have this hair because when the Cherokee and the African mix, this is what it looked like. I have this skin color because you understand? Yeah. So it's in the fibers. In the DNA. America has not wanted to tell the truth about that. Mm. They use the flag. Let it be about America. But America, as it was built and grounded, stripped me, my people, my native indigenous people of their land. It was stolen. They put all of the indigenous people in prisons called reservations. That's built into the fiber. And they don't want to acknowledge that. They brought my mother's people and my grandmother's people over here on a ship and called them animals and beat them and rape them. They don't want to tell the truth about that. So they make it about the flag and what America stands for and what it is. Well, it does stand for that while it's kneeling on my neck and sitting on my face and telling me that I'm no good. We have to be mindful because those who control the words and images control the minds of the people. So they give you this image of the flag and make you put your hand on your chest and never know that they use the flag to cover the hundreds of thousands of black women that they raped and the babies that they stole. Put the flag over that. Or the black men that they hung, put the flag over that. Oh, it's about the flag. It's not about the dead black bodies, brown bodies, red bodies laying underneath it. So I was very astute when he said that. Mm. I will never tolerate anybody kneeling, disrespecting the flag. Oh, it's okay for you to disrespect me, but I'm not supposed to disrespect that piece of cloth. No. See, I'm old enough now. I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) No. I can say what I want to say. You know, I don't worry about it anymore. I'm not dependent on somebody for a job. I don't care what people think about me. And even if they think it and say it, I'm too old, I forget. So now, you know, he was out of order. He was out of order. Mm. And I never comment on Twitter. <laughs> you know? But when I saw that, I was like, oh, wait up, hold up a minute. 
because my grandmother's, my father's mother's people were brutalized. My mother, my grandmother passed for black in the 1920s because it was easier to be a black person than it was to be a red person. Wow. Okay. Can you imagine passing for black? <laughs> That's the first time I ever heard of that, actually. <laughs> Tell you, because her father was African. Mm. Her skin was much lighter than mine. So she passed for black. Well, I think there's some celebrities who try to pass for black now, I think, but that's a different story. (laughs) Yeah. You tweeted something that I found to be intriguing. You said, don't tell that story again. Don't utter another syllable about the pain, the losses, unless you are ready to recover right now. In your view, what would recovery look like for blacks in America? And is America ready to recover? Fix America's life. (laughs) (laughs) It means telling the truth. It's not just that I hurt. It's that I hurt because blah, 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 and owning your part in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I hurt as a black woman, as a red woman, I hurt. But I hurt because I played your game. Mm-hmm. I've hurt because I allowed you to disrespect me. I hurt because I didn't stand up for myself because I thought I had to feed my kids or I thought I had to do this or that. So if you're not willing to tell the rot gut down in your belly truth, Stand or sit in the consequences of that and have a clear ask. That's the key. A clear ask. So as a Black woman, I know what I'm asking for. And what is your ask? My ask is to honor me. Don't define me. Don't confine me. Honor me. I am Yamla. Don't call me Yolanda. No. <laughs> the fact that your tongue can't equate the I and the Y together, that's not on me. Right. Honor me. That's my ask. And my ask is don't lie to me. That dishonors me. Looking in my face and telling me I'm equal to you. Shut your mouth. Honor <laughs> me. That's my ask. Here's my ask. See my son my black son and my black grandson and my black great-great-grandson. See them as men and honor them. That's my ask. My ask is all the black children in the substandard schools. See them as children, viable beings, and provide them with what they need to be educated. Don't tell me that the taxes or the whatever, whatever. My ask is treat all children equally. That's my ask. So I said, don't tell a story about your hurt and your pain unless you're willing to own your part and then have a clear ask for what to do about it because just telling the story. And yes, America, well, if America ain't ready, she better get ready because people (laughs) have taken it to the streets and they're not coming out. This thing is getting ready to shift. Where do you think it goes? Where do you think all of this energy taking it to the streets, where does it lead? It leads to the only thing that will change anything, which is a conversation. It leads to people calling out stuff. Like, you know, we're talking about the police. We better be worried about the courts Mm. because the courts have been fixed against us. Stacked. More than 200 judges appointed to the... mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. I believe it leads to conversations. And I don't want us to be deluded into thinking that it's only going to be one conversation. There have to be many conversations on many levels. And those conversations have to begin in our homes. Mm. They have to begin in our homes so that when we go out, we're standing as a united front and we understand. Then they have to begin in our churches. Right. They have to begin in our classrooms. They have to begin in our boardrooms. 
There have to be a lot of conversations because everything begins with a conversation. So much of the discourse and a lot of what we've been talking about has been about the very pain, the tragedy, the loss, and this discomfort that we've been talking about. Yet Black Americans in this country and people of color writ large, but specifically Black Americans, some of our greatest creative genius was conceived in the womb of heartache and strife. What advice would you have for people, particularly for those taking it to the streets right now, for how to find joy and healing amid so much suffering? I would say another song title. I'm in the music today. <laughs> have church, have church. <laughs> There's a song says, our worship is shifting the atmosphere. It's shifting the atmosphere. Don't think because it's not happening today that it's not going to happen. Continue to pray, continue to meditate, continue to affirm. Our praise is shifting the atmosphere. Our marching is shifting the atmosphere. Our unity is shifting the atmosphere. Our conversations is shifting the atmosphere. And in that process, some of us are going to be sacrificed. Thank you, George Floyd. We owe you a debt of gratitude. Thank you, Breonna Taylor. We owe you a debt of gratitude. Thank you, Ahmaud Aubrey. We owe you a debt of gratitude. And all of the other ones, because we didn't stay on it when it was Trayvon. We didn't stay on it when it was Eric. We didn't stay on it when it was Sandra. But we shifted the atmosphere. That's right. And now we hit that critical mass where we have taken it to the streets to wake everybody up. Oh, I could just go on. But you just strung us on again. <laughs> My final question for you, thank you so much for your time. If you wrote a book about the times that we're in, what's the title of the final chapter? Accountability. We have to be held accountable for what we think, what we say, what we do, and how we be how we be, accountability, do what you say you're going to do, accountability, be willing to answer for what you've done, accountability, what are the consequences of the choices and the intentions and the decisions that you made? We're calling you into account, accountability, because we as everyday people, we have to become accountable. We can't just whine and moan and complain. We got to be held accountable for what we didn't do, what we didn't say, where we didn't go, when we didn't march, when we didn't vote. We got to be held accountable for that. As white people, you got to be held accountable that you bought these thousand dollar custom rugs and swept everything up under there. How you treated me, how you talked to me, how you saw me, how you looked at me, you swept it under the rug accountability, white male superiority and domination that you call the college degree. I got degrees. I don't even know where they are. <laughs> still ask me, why am I in the first class line in the airport? Accountability. Why are our children being undereducated? What are we parents doing and not doing? Accountability. Daddies, come home and get your children so that they don't end up in the modern day slave ship called the prison. Accountability. Women Men. Why are you sleeping with men and having children with them and you don't even know their mama's name? Accountability. I'm talking across the board. Right. Accountability. That would be the title of my <laughs> Well, that is a perfect place for us to end it on a line of accountability. Thank you so very much, Ms. Van Zandt, for your time today. Thank you. We honor you, respect you, and we appreciate the wisdom that you brought with us today. Thank you for asking me. It's my honor. Coming up, Can I Get a Witness, where you'll hear my thoughts on what's going on. You don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here.
Welcome back to Pot for the Cause, where we've been talking about the state of our nation and the serious events surrounding the killing of George Floyd. Now, before I say goodbye to you today, there are a couple of things I want to say. We've been here before with Emmett Till, Rodney King, Trayvon Martin, the Charleston Nine. We've been here before. We go through the same routine. We have the same goodwill. We shed the same tears. We eulogize the same bodies. We bury the same dreams. We've been here before. And the question that is wrestling with my spirit is, are we going to be here again? We don't need another racial inflection point in this country. We've had plenty of those. This has to be it. This has to be the last racial inflection point, a tipping point that actually leads us in the direction of justice. I caution people. Don't try to ride out this storm. Don't just do the bare minimum. Don't just say what you need to say to get by. Don't just put up the sign because you think that's the polite thing to do. Don't ride out this storm. Use this opportunity to create a storm. Create a storm of justice. Create a storm of healing. Create a storm of equality. And create a storm of love. This is Alan Brooks Lashore for Pod for the Cause. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to season two of Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. We'll be back with season three very soon. But in the meantime, visit civilrights.org to learn all of the ways to stay involved with the movement and to connect with us. Visit us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod for the Cause. And be sure to text podcasts, that's podcast with a plural S, to 21333 to get updates from us right on your phone. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Alan Brooks Lashore. Stay strong and keep hope alive. Yeah.